Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, William the Conqueror. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. We are back after our Christmas break. 2011. 2011, New Year, and New Dynasty, because we finished with the Saxons, as kings at least. We're here. We're finally familiar ground, 1066 done, William the Conqueror. William the Conqueror, indeed. Brilliant. For new listeners, um, what we do is review a new king uh, or queen each week, from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. Judge them on a number of factors, such as how good they are in battle, creating scandal, and whether they're a good, just ruler. Subjectivity. Subjectivity, as we call it. And at the end, we decide whether or not they have this mark of greatness, which we call the Rex Factor, and which we'll be defining a little more closely uh, when we come Mm. to it later in the show. So, as you said, William the Conqueror, after the sort of apocalyptic year of 1066, three battles, William the Conqueror beats Harold in Hastings, and conquest seemingly would be complete. Or is it? Or is it? Maybe he's got a bit more to do. Anyway, he's born in 1028... And he's the son of Robert, Duke of Normandy, and uh, a woman called Haleva. And he becomes king in 1066, so he's 38 years old. Pretty old. he becomes king. It was what we'd consider old for the Saxons, but it's a bit more common now that we'll get mature kings. Okay. And the Normans seem to have a bit more longevity than yeah. the Saxons did. Oh, so they're going to score disproportionately. Indeed. So, the Sax- so 38, not that okay. he's old for a Norman. Primary uh, He's 25th great-grandfather of Elizabeth II. That's cool. I like that. Yeah, it's a nice round number. Yeah, exactly. And uh, apparently he was very t- tall for the age. He was 5 foot 10, I think, and exceptionally strong. So strong, apparently he could draw a bow on a horse, which others would struggle to bend whilst on foot. Hmm. So he's a man bred for war. Fair enough. Indeed. He's found his... Found his, found his yeah, yeah. He, he chose well in his <laughs> career. Um, a little bit of backgroundy stuff about Normandy, just so we know who these mm. Norman peoples are and how they've come to be conquering the Saxons. Uh, the name comes from the term Northmen, as they were known, because Normans were originally Vikings. And then in 911, um, they were getting into French territories. So the Frankish leader, Charles the Simple, mm. unfortunately known, yeah. uh, gave a certain amount of territory to a Viking ruler called Rollo. At the time, they were looked down on as sort of pagan barbarians, but as part of the agreement with Rollo, they became Christian and they adopted French culture and French language. So they founded that abbey. Indeed, yep. Abbey. And it's worth noting at this time there's no one united France. There had been an empire under this ruler called Charlemagne, which had been France and lots of Europe, but it's now broken up into little principalities mm. like Normandy, Anjou, Maine, mm. etc. And that's quite a big thing for the Norman leaders because they're looking to France as well as to England. Yeah. So Normandy's lots of struggles and battles going on all the time. There's a bit of a, they can consolidate their power if they can just find a base yeah, a bit more in England. Indeed. Um, they come into England's sphere of influence through a woman called Emma of Normandy, if we recall, who married Ethelred the Unready mm-hmm. and was the mother of Edward the Confessor and also the great aunt to William, which meant that Edward and William were technically yeah. related. <clears throat> anyway, William, born in 1028, was at this time known as William the Bastard because he was an illegitimate son, because Haleva was not the wife of Robert Duke of Normandy. In fact, she was rumoured to be the daughter of a Falasian tanner. 
Oh, I mean, these names aren't very kind, are they? You've Not very kind at all. Been written out of history. Though. Well, he was known. That was how he was known by. And he was all over that. Well, probably by enemies at the time. <laughs> Didn't sign his name. There was a time when I think Allenson Castle, which he captured once when he was sieging it, they were sort of throwing out sort of bits of animal skin as sort of saying, oh, Ah, Lord yeah. Katana. Okay. Uh, when he got in there, he chopped all their hands off and made it pretty clear he didn't take the joke too well. Mm. You're not going to really make that joke again, are you? No, sensitive, perhaps. Certainly not that joke. You could say. It's yeah. a different joke, yeah. different style of humour. <laughs> um, but because Robert didn't have any other sons, he named William as his heir, despite being illegitimate. And then when Robert dies in 1035, William becomes the Duke, but he's only seven or eight years old at the time. So it's very unstable in Normandy, and he has something of a traumatic childhood, which might have been important in terms of his later character of being rather ruthless. He's always in danger from rival claimants or people who just want to take control of Normandy while the child is weak and on the throne. Yeah. Many of his guardians were murdered, i.e. the people that were protecting him were actually killed, and he had to be moved between lots of locations to avoid being attacked, including sometimes actually taking shelter in cottages of peasants because it wasn't safe to remain in royal residences. So they went around killing his guardians, presumably trying to kill him. Yeah. They got, they got all the way. All the way, and right they just up didn't to the, do main the baby man. bit. Indeed. Oh. Well, apparently, there was one story where it was actually somebody who was sleeping next to him that was killed by mistake. They thought it was William. And uh, Lord of the Rings type stabbing the pillows job. He very much so. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Someone's been uh, watching <laughs> over I wish the I hadn't. Christmas. Oh. Anyway, when he gets older, he's able to start actually leading in battle and to assert his authority. And with the help of Henri I of um, another re- local territory, I think, or possibly just France. Um, he defeats his rivals in the Battle of Valley Dune in 1047. So that secures Normandy through battle, where right. he distinguishes himself. Anyway, by 1060, William can start focusing elsewhere, such as on England. Mm. Now, we have technically covered all this, but just to remind, if you haven't listened previously, William's claim to the throne, partly he's the grandnephew of Emma and thus cousin to Edward, the confessor who was king, but also, in 1051, Edward the Confessor was said to have named William as his heir because he didn't have any children. Yeah, this whole murky business of the succession. It's all a bit murky whether he did or not, whether he merely meant it, but William certainly took it to mean he was the legitimate mm, heir. You would. Indeed. And then in 1064, his biggest rival in England, Harold Godwinson, was shipwrecked in Normandy and William made him swear an oath of allegiance to support him to become king after Edward had died, which Harold did. So, when 1066 and Harold becomes king... William's pretty peeved, mm. builds up an army, goes over, they fight at Hastings, and William wins, and mm. thus is king. Or so he thinks. He presumes, waiting outside London, that people will just invite him to come into the capital, be crowned, be king, everybody's happy. Instead, demonstrating that nobody really saw him as the legitimate heir in England, they decided to acclaim the only royal Saxon that was still alive, Edgar the Ethling, as king. So this is a teenager who was the grandson of Edmund Ironside. Is he the Hungarian chap? Yeah, he's the son of the Hungarian chap that died right. as soon as he came yeah. to England. So he's about 14, 15, and he's Poor the guy. last royal male left of the Saxon line. And they claim him as king. Edgar the Ethling. Edgar the Ethling. Ethling. Ethling means uh, a recognised royal prince right. who sort of has a claimed throne. Yeah. William's not too happy about this, so he tries to force his way into London, gets pushed away a little bit by the men of London, so he has to take a, a longer route round. What do you mean? Well, when he first tries to go in yeah. with his army, some men go and meet him and sort of... Really? Yeah, not... Why don't f- they just 
Well, it wasn't a full-on battle, but I guess at bridges and stuff, they were putting up a show of force, and William didn't want to have to fight another battle. He was expecting just to go in and be acclaimed as king. It's not good to slaughter your citizens, but as you can see, however, resistance quickly fades. There's no real strategy that they've got the Saxons to work out how they're going to fight William, Mm. and they've fought three battles, if we recall, in quite quick succession. So to raise a fourth army. Really isn't on. Yeah, fourth reserves, not really good. And Edgar's a bit too young and inexperienced to be any kind of leader. So, reluctantly, they submit to William, and Christmas Day, 1066, he is crowned King of England. Has a bit of a tricky start in his coronation ceremony. He follows the traditional ceremony of Dunstan and Edgar the Peaceable, Mm -hmm. show he's there with the Saxons. But because of language issues, it has to be done in French and in English. And there's a bit where you have to do a call of acclamation where you recognise, acknowledge the king as your king. Mm. And apparently the Normans and the Saxons inside were shouting quite loudly to try and outdo each other. And the Norman guards outside got a bit worried, thought that somebody was trying to kill William and started setting houses on fire. And uh, a riot broke out. I did not Outside know Outside Westminster Abbey, yeah. Why the, what, so they were both all shouting, we recognised him. It wasn't like the Saxons were going, no, and the others were going, <laughs> yes. So they were all shouting, yes. They all said yes, but because oh. they couldn't understand each other. So the Normans outside just thought, it's just shouting, God, it's chaos. This, maybe it that's, that's where it starts, if, you know, if, if a foreigner can't understand you, just speak louder. <laughs> <laughs> it's disastrous results, it's never worked. Disastrous. Anyway, after that unfortunate start, William... Tries to be fairly conciliatory. His rule only really extends to the south and bits of Mercia, i.e. the Midlands. Mm. So only two Normans are given any real authority, Oda of Bayo and uh, William Fitzosborne. And the surviving earls are still English earls, still in their position. So Edwin and Morker, who had been earls in Northumbria yeah. and Mercia, they're still there. And there's another chap, Wolfeoff. They're still there. They're still on the King's Council. Church leaders retain their sees after making their submission, so you know, everything's fairly Makes good. Makes sense, doesn't it? If someone's going to swear fealty, you've got to... Mm. Mm. So, 1067, he goes back to Normandy feeling pretty happy. However, there's growing English discontent. Partly because William viewed Harold as an illegitimate usurper. So anybody who fought with Harold at Hastings was thus fighting against William illegitimately. So anyone that fought with Harold at Hastings and survived had their lands forfeited which they weren't too happy about. But these ones in Northumbria didn't fight with Harold. No, because they hadn't been able to get back, having lost that That's battle right, against yeah, Harold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were a bit lucky. And they had been replaced by Harold. Because, yes, yeah. OK, yeah. January 1067, all Englishmen were forced to make payments to retain their lands, which, again, they weren't too happy about. And Odo and Fitzosborne proved quite harsh and unpopular regents in his absence. So when William comes back, 1067... The English resistance starts. Lots of pocketed bits of rebellion, which last from about 1067 to 1062, 72, sorry. Mm. All over the country, rebellions brings up that William has to deal with. Mm. And we'll look at this in more detail in battliness, but basically he's able to deal with each of them individually. There's no strategy again. There's no real strong leader at the heart of it. Yeah. And he's able to put it down, (coughs) partly through a show of force, Partly because there's no organisation, and also, of course, partly because of castles. Yes. <laughs> so, um, and meanwhile, Edgar the Eatling, he's, he, that's the problem. They don't have any central leadership. Indeed. I mean, he's getting involved, very much getting involved, but... Trying to prove himself, but failing. Indeed. Poor chap. Poor, poor chap. Can I raise a really practical um, or impractical question at this point, rather? Yes. They hear shouting in, the, in Westminster yes. Abbey. 
their decision is go and burn a house. I think they thought that the Saxons were taking that moment to attack William, and thus the Normans. So they thought everybody's going to be in on it, I guess, and just lashed out. Okay. Anyway, 1072, William's pretty much got England sorted now. He's Mm. pretty much brutally (laughs) oppressed the country once the rebellions have been quelled. So he goes back to France, and for the rest of the reign, he spends about four-fifths of his time in Normandy and France, rather than in England. So he's... But why do they do that? Because a lot of the, f- the French dynasty did that. I know they can see clearly France as home, but if you're trying to set up a new dynasty, you've got to stay there. You've got to... Well, the thing is, he's, he's got lots and lots of... Mar- I mean, we'll come to this in battliness to a certain extent, but he sets up lots of nobles who build their castles and then sort of rule in place. It's ticking over. Particularly in Wales, where you've got like mm. the marcher lords yeah. who very strong authority Mm. and the other thing is England's actually very well governed and administered by the Saxons so it's probably the most centrally administered state in Europe or certainly in Western Europe yeah so it's actually better governed and stable than anywhere in France because in France as we said he's surrounded by lots of warring principalities oh yeah Yeah, so it's actually much harder and indeed the France and Anjou have become powerful again under new leaders so he has to go and deal with that and secure Normandy England mm. is actually a much right. safer territory. Okay, yeah. All right, well done, William. He still has a difficult time of it. He spends pretty much his entire time just going from one uh, rebellion to another in all the different countries. There's a final rebellion in England, 1075, the Revolt of the Three Earls. Fizzles out very quickly, but Waltheof, uh, the last surviving earl, gets executed. Gets it, right. Beheaded. 1076, he has a difficult time fighting Philippe, and then 1077 to 80, his oldest son, Robert, known as Robert Curthos, um, rebels against him, unhappy at the way that he's being treated. And uh, they come to blows, and he almost actually kills his father. He unhorses him at one point, and only stops when he realises it's William. Really? Which, yeah. So he presumably gets it, because I know he's not the next No, kid. no, they, um, they're reconciled at Rouen by the mother or the wife, Matilda, of Flanders. So there was a point in battle where he went, oh. Yeah. <laughs> and they just sort of went, turned around and fought someone else. Uh, oh, well, I suspect they just yeah. sort of drifted apart. Ever so, guys, has gone too far. Someone's <laughs> yeah. going to get hurt. I'd love to see how that transpired and thoughts go through their heads. Well, it's an interesting thing. Um, we've seen in reading for Wolf, uh, Rufus that actually knights didn't tend to kill each other that often. The important people didn't tend to get killed. They were much more likely to get ransomed yeah, yeah. than like, killed. Yeah, yeah, you didn't kill a king. Yeah. Well, you, could, you couldn't... Yeah, like it was uh, improper for a, a peasant to have killed a king. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, um, he's got one last big thing in him, the Doomsday Book, 1086, this huge survey of England and Wales establishing all the lands and land ownership of the whole country, so named because it was seen by Saxons as Judgment Day, because once it was written, that was it. There were no appeals. This was how things were. This was yeah. how much tax you would pay. All settled. Anyway, 1087, back in France, takes action against uh, King Philippe, sacks the town of Mons, but he falls from his horse and the saddle struck him in his stomach and uh, caused serious injury to him and ultimately killed him. Because it went right in. He got a bit of a belly at this point, was the problem. Mm. And uh, indeed, Philippe of France said he looked like a pregnant woman. (laughs) Presumably not to his face. <laughs> yeah, he would lose his lips. The famous handless yeah, Philippe yeah. of France. <laughs> and indeed, when attendants were... When he was being buried, his funeral, and people trying to force him into his stone uh, sarcophagus, they were really pushing and pushing because he wouldn't quite fit. And his belly 
burst. That is awful. And apparently filled the church with a very foul smell, so the funeral rites were conducted very swiftly so that everybody <laughs> could get out. Oh, rest in peace, I mean. <laughs> oh, that's dreadful. Rather undignified end for William, but uh, a very impressive reign. He dies age 59. That is jolly impressive. That is jolly impressive. Yeah. Anyway, so that's uh, the general biography. What we'll do now is look in more detail at each of the factors and then each give a score out of Okay. So, first factor. Battleliness. This is the main factor for William. It's pretty much what he spends his whole time doing. And he's good. He was was born and bred for it. Indeed he was. So, as we said, he secures Normandy, uh, 1047, that battle at Valley Dune, where he first Mm -hmm. um, establishes himself. 1051 to 2, he takes castles Alençon and Dumfront. 1053, he takes Arc Castle. I'm not sure about the pronunciations. Mm-hmm. 1054, defeats Henri and Geoffrey at Mortimer. And then 1057, defeats them at Varaville. Lots of success early on in Normandy. Not any losses. No losses. And then, of course, we have the Battle of Hastings in 1066. Yeah. For lots of detail on that, I will refer you to our episode on Harold II. Mm. But to summarise... On the one hand, he's a bit lucky because he wanted to invade earlier, but the weather stopped him. And if he had done, Harold would have been ready for him, waiting on the coast. Because of the delay, Hardrada invaded first. Harold had to go up to York to deal with that and then come straight back down for Hastings. And then they almost managed to get that draw, which would have seen the Saxons win. Yeah. On the other hand, <coughs> William won the battle. He did win the battle. I, I wouldn't... It's tricky, isn't it? You can't take that away. I can't take it away from him, but I think it was, although a loss, as impressive a performance by Harold. Indeed. But still, he won. Yeah, brilliant. He did win, though. And as I said, Harold was obviously a great warrior, had a good defensive position, and William was able, ultimately, to break it down. Mm. And it's results that win it. (laughs) It is, yeah. And he did. If that was all that he had to go on for England, then maybe you'd say, well, it's impressive, but a bit fortunate. But the Norman Conquest is really about what comes after Hastings, yeah. rather than Hastings itself. So as you said, there is an English resistance, yeah. and they really try to get rid of him. And they're quite stubborn about this. They really don't want to <laughs> let him be king. So these are the people who are rebelling against William. Yes, go for it. Edgar the Etheling, grandson of Edmund Ironside, the natural figurehead for a rebellion, and the person who could unify the country if he could be put on the throne after William's dead. Mm-hmm. He's treated very generously by William, but he's ambitious and he believes it's his right to be king. Edwin and Morca are the brothers who were earls in Mercia and yeah. Northumberland, uh, although Morca doesn't get to keep his earldom, but Edwin does. They didn't fight at Hastings because they'd been defeated by Hadrada earlier on and were building an army to come down. They submit to William, but again, they don't want to stay there and they don't really trust him. Right, so but so William yeah. leaves them alone, effectively. He, they're powerful northern yeah. barons because they need to keep up what was Danish land. But they see life. that he's bringing more and more Normans. Mm-hmm. They don't quite trust him. The Godwin family, Harold's family. Harold's dead, but his mother, Githa, is still a powerful woman, and they're very rich, of course. Mm-hmm. And Harold's sons, Godwin and Magnus, are just about old enough to be thinking about fighting. So they're based down in the southwest, and they're hoping to use their resources to make a comeback. So they've still got designs okay. on being king. Just to recap, what do they do to Edgar the Ethling? We don't, that hasn't been covered yet, but he's still alive. Oh, he's still alive. William um, accepts him at court, gives him a generous pension and land and money and everything. Uh, it's very well treated. Yeah. 
Edric the Wild. Sounds good. He's a, a Saxon thane in Herefordshire, so on the Welsh border, who refuses to submit to William. Kicks up a bit of fuss. Most famously of all, Hereward the Wake. Yes, I like this chap. Is a folk hero who is a son of an East Anglian nobleman. He was exiled as a young man for being a bit wild, but then he comes home in 1066 to find that his family are dead, his brother's been killed, and his land has been stolen. Not too dissimilar, you might suggest, from the entrance of Kevin Costner, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Yeah. Of course, he comes back yeah, and yeah, his land's yeah. gone and his father's dead. But he's got his um, blind friend, at least. Yeah, no, no blind, friend blind friend or Azim yeah, in the Crusades. And they've also got a couple of external friends. Malcolm III of Scotland is pally with Edgar the Aetheling. And also Sven II of Denmark is looking for a chance to make a bit of money come over. Yeah, because he's got a bit of a claim. He does, so lots and lots of people that are mm. opposing William. Mm. So, it all plays out. 1067, Edric the Wild takes some action in Herefordshire. He allies with some Welsh rulers, attacks the castle and lays waste to the town. Does a bit of damage. Godwin family, the southwest at this point is out of William's reach. So they set up base in Exeter, repair the old Burr fortifications from Alfred the Great, Edward the Elder time, and win the loyalty of the local thanes by some hearse girls. He, He's so only really got his sort of the southeast bits in the Midlands. He hasn't spread He's yet everywhere yet. Visit everywhere and yeah. build to bed, yeah. Exactly. 1068, Edwin and Morca look to stir up a rebellion in uh, Mercia, where they're supported by Edgar. Um, local commanders for the Normans stand firm, and very quickly the Saxon resistance melts away. Edwin and Morca say sorry. Edgar runs off to Scotland which is something of a theme for how these things play out, unfortunately. The Godwins, William decides to deal with them. He besieges Exeter, and it takes 18 days to break them down. Very costly for the Normans, mm. lose a lot of men. Uh, but ultimately, the Normans prevail. Harold's sons go off into Ireland for exile. Mm. However, dealing with it, but 1069, this is the year when it all really comes to a head, and the Saxons have the biggest uh, attempt to oust him. So the Godwins build up lots of support and resources in Ireland, come back over to the southwest and really have a good go to see if they can deal with it. Mm. Edric the Wild on the Welsh border, uh, a Norman, Roger of Montgomery, builds a castle in Shrewsbury. So Edric takes the town, can't take the castle, but then he moves down to Cheshire and Stafford, laying waste to all the Norman uh, garrisons and people there. So you've got the southwest, the Welsh, then... Uh, in Durham, uh, William's baron up there, Robert de Cominez, is killed by the locals. So they go on a rampage, march off down to York, where they're joined by Edgar the Aetheling, yeah. and then they, uh, they take York. Key town. Indeed, very key town. Unfortunately for them, William turns up, routes them very quickly, and builds a second castle, just for good measure. On the other side of the river, that is cool. So if you can two castles yeah. in York now. There's a brilliant um, illustration of, that castle, um, of the castle in the time, well worth having a look mm. at. Then Sven II throws his lot in. His brother, Osbjorn, arrives with 240 ships, attacks the east coast, but then links up with Edgar, and then they take York again and capture both castles. So serious damage being done yeah. here. And then Malcolm in Scotland, he's doing a bit of mischievous raiding on the border as well. So it's all kicking off for William. Lots of uh, challenges all over the place. However, he sees it off very comfortably. Mm. The Godwins aren't able to harness enough support in the southwest because people fear what the Normans will do if they support them, with good cause. Mm. Uh, and then the Norman army finally catches them out and about 1,700 men are killed in battle. 
so they're completely wiped out. The brothers do escape, and they go off back into exile, but barring the odd raid, they're out of it. Yeah, so, where did they get all their money from? They well, they had like... loads of money before, because they all owned pretty much the whole of the country beforehand. But, I mean, it's not like they've got a bank. And they, they went to, to Ireland. Just take it around in chests. And... Mm. But and they went to Ireland as well, and they, he, the king there supported them yeah. to go and cause trouble. But they're done now. They can't yeah. come back now. So the Godwin family, the southwest, dealt with. As for the north, this is where the problem really is, where you've got the Danes over alongside Edgar. That's the real challenge. So William leaves all the other bits of uprisings that are happening, goes straight there, and uh, sees off the Danes at the Humber. They back away. They don't want a full-out battle with William because they know how strong he is. Agree to leave the next spring as long as William lets them stay there over the winter and ultimately submit to William. Meaning that William gets rid of the English and harries the north to make sure that no one will ever rebel again. There's a lot of harrying in the north. A lot of harrying. We'll come back to that a bit later for the full gory details. Mm -hmm. However, uh, this deal was done with Osbjorn, but Sven II decides that he can just pop over himself and doesn't really matter because he didn't sign up to this so he comes over threatens to do a bit of fighting but William pays him some Dane girls and he goes off again quite happy fair enough as all he really wants is the treasure the Vikings they're not really out for a full on invasion however then 1070 early in the year William decides to deal with Edric the Wild in Wales so in winter marches his army across the Pennines which is a very dangerous thing for Mm. a Norman army to do Dangerous, but he manages it, and then they get to Stafford, easily see off the rebels, Edric the Wild submits. And gets killed? No, no, he just he's carries quite, on. Um, he's, he's very nice, forgiving. Yeah, he's he? very forgiving to important people. Mm. Not so much the peasants, as we'll see later. But nobles, they do tend to get forgiven. However, there's one man still standing who can do some damage, which is Hero with the Wake. And this is how he becomes the folk hero. He's brilliant. He is brilliant. Um, he was, I think, sort of from Lincolnshire originally, but he's based in East Anglia, and he sets up camp on the Isle of Ely, which is a place close to yeah. your heart. Yeah. And it's a good place to hold a rebel strong camp because it's got all the marshes, the fens, very hard to bridge, and I think it was probably harder then than it is now. I think. The yeah, it was all flooded. It was just a, what, an Isle of Ely, they call it. Yeah, it literally, was, it was an island. Yeah, you didn't know how to get there unless you had a guided fall in the marsh and die. Brilliant. And of course the Normans, with their heavy armour and their cavalry, can't just Stuck. trot over yeah. indeed. So what he does, in 1070, he's doing lots of raids on the Normans. He sacks Peterborough Abbey when it was put under Norman control and had some of its effects taken away and sent back to France. And then in 1071, we have the last stand. This is now all the rebels come pretty much to Peterborough, including Edwin and Morker, who've gone into hiding because they've learned that they were probably going to get arrested by William. Lift her a bit in the woods, doing some raiding, but then they join Hereward on Ely. William, seeing this as the last point, sends all his troops to finish them off once and for all, but he can't get onto the island. Mm. So he loses quite a lot of men trying to get across. Failed attacks, including siege armaments, even an old witch who was put up on an elevated platform, screaming incantations and flashing her bare buttocks at them. That didn't work? Didn't work. You're joking? Did not work. But the buttocks always work. (laughs) Not on this occasion. However, he finally manages to wreck a, a pontoon mm. and they're able to cross over to the island. Hereward disappears into legend. Morker is imprisoned and later dies. And Edwin was um, 
Not quite sure what happened to him. He was betrayed by his men, whether he was killed by them, killed by Norman soldiers. There's a romantic legend that he was killed trying to rescue his brother. Either way, he dies. Mm. And then that's really it. That'd be a long pontoon. I mean, this wasn't like a moat. It was a huge, oh, no, a, yeah, huge a really vast area. A big art- architectural yeah. uh, doing. So then he final touches, 1072, he threatens Malcolm of Scotland with war unless he stops raiding and gives up Edgar. The thing, so he does. Mm. And in 1074, Edgar sent off to Normandy on a very generous pension. Still? Oh, yeah. Even when Philippe of France sends him back with money and troops to launch another invasion, all goes wrong, uh, shipwrecked off the coast, <laughs> loses the treasure, loses the men, but William lets him stay again. So he keeps on forgiving him. Probably because he knows that by forgiving him all the time, it shows that he doesn't consider him a serious threat. So it kind of undermines... Either that, or this guy, Edgar Eatley, has got the gift of the gap. <laughs> I would think he probably does <laughs> have that. William, it wasn't me, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. So that's it, the English resistance has failed. If we look at why, partly because it's sporadic, as mm. we've demonstrated, all over the place, but there's no one overall strategy and no one overall leader. Yeah, everyone thinks they're Charlie Big Potatoes, but Indeed. no one. All the good people were killed in Hastings, basically, Harold and his brothers. Edgar Eatling's a bit too young to really know what he's doing. He needed to be able to build up his strength like Alfred the Great did when he was stuck in his marshy bog mm. and then emerge. But instead, Edgar just tends to run in, mm. kick a few Normans and then apologise. It could have, it could have been another perfect uh, Alfred the Great moment on the Isle of Ely in the marshes. Exactly. Yeah. But they yeah. couldn't do it. Also, they had limited forces. They couldn't really take William on in open battle. They were forced to do raiding. Lots of men in the woods who were known as Silbatici who were sort of wore camouflage and so were known as the Green Men. Right. And again, a little bit of a Robin Hood yeah. type thing. Merry men, green yeah. men in the woods. But that meant they couldn't take him on in battle. So whenever William turns up with his army... They're gone. They're gone. Also, they don't have very good defences. The houses of the nobles are too small to defend, unlike Norman castles, whereas the towns and the regions are too big. Sorry, so the, the, what, the, the houses the noble lives in, nobles live in? That the Saxon nobles live in. They're a bit too small to be able to be a fortification. So they can't just stay there. And also, something like Wessex, for example, would need 27,000 men or something like that to defend it. Really? So it's either too small or too big. They have no means of really... Because you can do later castles that we'll come on to have such great defences, you hold up an army with six men. Mm. Well, even these, the problem for the English is that they haven't had the strife that Normandy have with all its neighbours. So England's been so settled, <coughs> they haven't had to develop cavalry or castles mm. or any of this, so they're not ready for this. Mm. So, William deserves credit for subduing the rebellions. He identifies the people that he needs to deal with and deals with them quickly. A show of force and they just melt away. But of course, the big thing are castles. Yeah, awesome. Awesome, awesome stuff. Thrown up, so little time. Apparently something like six days yeah. they could get a sort of like a wooden, modern... Yeah, 90-foot man-made... Uh, uh, Earth Hill it's amazing the one mm. in Ely actually instantly is, a, is the park now and it's still there the park is is a is on in the fens which are very very flat the park mm. is this huge unnatural great big mound that's still there a thousand years later it's amazing that's the thing we see lots of places where there might not be a castle but if there's a great big mound yeah. that sort of valley ditch yeah. it's probably a Norman castle well they've been well the castles are still there because the castles tend to be Editions of earlier ones. They mm. might have been uh, on the site of the old Norman castle and built on. Well, the, the keep sometimes much higher. 
Because what I hadn't realised until this was that they were initially all just wooden castles, and Mm. it's not till later that we get the the stone ones. At, where is it? Chepstow, first stone Mm. castle. I can't remember what that is. I thought it was 1070. However, they build lots and lots of them, um, something like 80 major castles by 1086, including Mm. um, starting to build the Tower of London, specifically the White Tower. Mm. And the Saxons just had nothing like this. Uh, A Norman... English writer Alderic Vitalis said that the fortifications which the French call castles are very rare in the English regions and hence, although the English were warlike and bold, they were weaker in resisting their enemies because they just had no means of yeah, dealing with, deal it. with that. Yeah. Which meant that the Normans, with very few men, could just mm. build a castle, set up shop, and the Saxons are put down quite easily. I mean, yeah, these temporary ones they throw up, you know, with wooden palisades and stuff, hugely effective. But when you start um, going at uh, the um, when they start building them in stone, they're they're still the largest keeps mm. ever built. I mean, they're just vast constructions, like Colchester, and they're huge. much much larger than anything yeah, else just, on the Saxon landscape. Yeah. So they really dominate psychologically as well as mm. militarily. Yeah. Anyway. Generally, that's a very successful military record for William. It's flawless, really. He's conquered another country, and not just won the battle, but then cemented it. Yeah, and we haven't, we haven't seen that yet. The total dominating conquest, yeah. without... It's not like there was a bit of toing and froing like there was with some Saxon periods where you then gave the Danes some of the land back. This is this is flawless victory of England, with, yeah. with riots that he then puts down. Mm. Brilliant. So, for a score, then... Um, I mean, I think a, a sort of a nine would be a given. What what makes a ten for this? I was about, I, you know, I was about to say there was no there's no foreign wars, mm. not necessarily not. Of course, that's not necessarily a good thing, but it was. I mean, it was to to Normandy. He's on two fronts and yeah. different sides of the sea, and he is literally sort of hopping from one to the other, putting yeah. down a rebellion, coming back, putting down another one. Um, I. He's got to score at least the same as ha- as Harold. Yeah, which was 17. 17. Um, I'd like to give him more, but I think that was, they were so close to the Battle of Hastings, mm. and Harold, having already beaten... Uh, Hardrada. Hardrada, who himself was hugely successful, I'd want to give him the same, mm. but it was, a, it was a total conquest. I'm going to give him... Uh, I'm going to give him nine and a half. I'm going nine. Which will be 18 and a half, which is our highest ever score uh, for battliness. I, yeah, I wish I'd just got 0.5 more than Harold, but there we are. That's what he's got. Well, I mean, to be fair, he wins Hastings and then he does lots of other stuff. Howell, mm. of course, has a... Didn't get a chance, did he? He was only there. That's the problem. Yeah. That's what's going to happen. But anyway, 18 and a half, very good score for William the Conqueror in battliness. Let's see how he does with our next category. Scandal. So... Scandal, usually we would focus on sort of sexual stuff and indiscretions and whatnot. William doesn't have any whatsoever. He's a bastard. Well, <laughs> let's not get personal. <laughs> He's, well, he's scandalous for being born. What his dad did, yes, yeah. his birth. But in terms of his marriage, it's probably the most sympathetic element of his character because he is entirely faithful to her. Really? really? That's what they all the chronicles say. No illegitimate children, no suggestion of affairs whatsoever. He's completely faithful, which at the time 
was remarkable. Yeah, William the Conqueror sponsored by Durex. <laughs> well, even to the extent that when he was younger and didn't seem to show any interest in women, it was even suggested that he must be impotent because there were no illegitimate Williams really? running around. Yeah, such was the tendency. However, he is notorious for the way that he treats, in particular, the North. Mm. Which technically, this is the North, as in the North of England. Not mm. Mm. Technically, this would be bad subjectivity, but he's so notorious for it that I think it counts yeah. for scandal. Yeah, yeah. So, the harrying of the North. This is what he did in 1069 after he put down the rebellion involving Edgar and the Danes. Mm. And what he does is he has all the crops, herds, chattel, food, arable land burnt and salted in this huge sort of spread from sort of Durham to York. So apparently there's a thousand square miles which just became a wilderness for decades afterwards because there was no way that you could live off the land. That's extreme, isn't it? Pretty bad. So there's no inhabited place for years between York and Durham as a result. Wow. And it's called pestilence, famine. Uh, Simeon of Durham said it, he recalled the putrefying corpses which littered the highways. The massacres led to pestilence and refugees in the final state of destitution and fled far south as Evesham. Yeah, I was going to say, move. There were they rubbish. <laughs> there's even rumours that people might have had to resort to cannibalism because it's just so... because you can't grow anything. No, so he completely lays waste to the north but it, other things as well similarly um, sort of mutilation of hostages in Exeter we remember in Alonso on the Castle where he didn't take the joke very well about his, uh, yeah. his upbringing and apparently Cheshire Staffordshire and Derbyshire in uh, Doomsday all record 10% of their estates as waste wow so he's pretty brutal in enforcing his rule but then in other ways it shows great leniency in other ways, it shows leniency. I think the leniency we could put in subjectivity. Political. But, yeah, and it's all political. Isn't it? But I think for scandal, yeah. what we've got basically is the way that he treats the North. And it's pretty bad. Even in the time which is pretty cruel and harsh as it is, this is really going so. <clears throat> it is, isn't it? Um, I quite like the cutting off of the hands as well. <laughs> yes, for it. Yeah. Um, point of view. Uh, there's not as much sex in there as I like. Well, there's very little. Yeah. Um, yeah. He doesn't, yeah, he doesn't muck around sort of bashing vicars and priests about. And no, none of that. that. It's good. I'm going to give him five. I was thinking five as well, yeah. so we'll give him a ten there. It's, you know, a bit more juiciness and he'd really be pushing it. But, but as it, it is... He's just... got the stock evilness there. He just doesn't have enough sex. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Branch out. <laughs> to top it up. Yeah. Don't put all the eggs in one basket. Yeah. Subjectivity. So subjectivity, this is whether or not you would want to be a subject to that king. We'll start with the good. Early on, he's fairly conciliatory. There's no mass purge. The English earls stay there. The priests and whatnot mm. stay there. Lanfranc, who is his sort of Norman Italian... No, no, Anne Frank. Ah. Uh, <laughs> Lanfranc, or Lanfranc, his Norman Italian Archbishop of Canterbury from 1070, proves to be a very learned and well-respected man... He ensures English independence from the papacy, so they've still got the authority to decide matters in England. What? What? English so authority like, from the papacy? Not complete in terms of theologically independent, oh, but just okay. in terms of making their own decisions okay, about bishops right. and whatnot. Uh, regulates English church alongside Norman principles, so no clerical marriages, no simony, which is selling church offices for personal gain. Um He's quite popular in terms of English saints. He doesn't get rid of them all. He's quite fond of Dunstan. 
aren't we all? Mm. Uh, and humanely, he allowed the exit from nunneries for women, uh, Saxon women, who'd only entered to avoid being forced into marriage by the Normans when the conquest first came along. Oh, right. So he let them leave the nunnery without having to pay fines or whatever. Which is a fairly nice thing to do. Yeah. We get some architectural wonders, all the castles and cathedrals, which we still enjoy yeah. today. Yeah. And the Doomsday Book, of course, which is this unprecedented survey of all the lands as in 1066 and as in 1086. It records absolutely everything in terms of the land, the slaves, the fisheries, the cattle. And it's unprecedented in our history. So it's the first real comprehensive yeah. survey. I heard that it was, they called it the Doomsday Book because they thought it would last until Doomsday. Just like more romantic version. I think it was just a nickname that Saxons yeah. gave. The Normans never called it Doomsday. What did they call it? They had lots of names, boring names, like a register of this or mm. William's Book, things like that. Yeah. I know, so that's an impressive thing. But there's quite a lot of bad. There is one or two bits. Indeed. An historian Peter Rex compares um, the occupation of England to that of France under the Nazis. Wow. Where you have sort of occupied zones, foreign invader, brutal repression, collaborators... And you contrast that with Canute, the Viking who yeah. conquered England. He's very conciliatory, rules as sort of modern model Saxon, keeps people in their place. In contrast, William tried to learn English, didn't get on with it and gave up. Consequently, Norman and Latin replaced English as the language of the elite and the written language. So previously people had written in English, now... It's Latin. Norman or Latin. Norman or Latin, yeah. yeah. Uh, castles and cathedrals, nice as they are to look at now, at the time they were just a sign of oppression. Yeah. So they weren't very popular. Mm. And indeed, Saxon houses and villages are actually demolished in order to make way for the Norman buildings, mm. which wouldn't have been too good if you were a Saxon who happened to live there. Women lost a bit of influence. Under the Saxons, they were able to own land and be quite wealthy. Under the Normans, there's only one woman who's a landowner in 1086 in the Doomsday. Wow. And that's the treacherous widow of a chap, Waltheoff, the earl, that got killed. She got his land. Why did they do that? Why did they just... It's much more um, sort of patriarchal. But in some ways they let them leave the nunneries. Yeah. It's give and take, isn't it? Give and take, indeed. Uh, And Doomsday Book, impressive as it is, on the one hand it's actually more of a tribute to the administrative capacity of the Saxon state. Good point. Because you couldn't have done it without the Saxons. And also it just shows all the land that's been nicked. Because they measure who owned what in 1066 and who owned what in 1086. Yeah. So you just see all these Saxons complaining that they're being oppressed and they've lost their land. Mm. There's something of an apartheid as well. So the Norman church, um, there's only one English bishop left by 1087. All the rest are Normans. Right. So either they get thrown out or just when one dies, it's automatically a Norman that comes in. Yeah. So the Normans and the elite at the top... Only 8% of land is owned by Saxons by the end of the reign. That is pretty extreme, isn't it? And you think there's about a million and a half Saxons and only about 20,000 Normans. So the Normans are just an elite owning everything. Mm. Um, Forest laws, forests are set up to be used only by the Normans. Um, Heavy penalties for the Saxons if they try and use it. Feudalism, where we have the land broken up by oaths of fealty. So Mm. people owing services to the king, they're sort of... Not exactly slaves, but they've lost a lot of their freedoms. A murder and fine, if an unknown man was murdered, the villagers had to prove that he wasn't English. Otherwise, they presume he was Norman, and the village would have to pay a fine. They'd have to prove the murdered person was English. Wasn't English. I proved that he was Norman, I suppose. Pro- oh, no, sorry, no, they had to prove he was English, you're right. So that in, in, if it was a Norman, they'd get... They'd get fined. 
And if it's an English person, that's alright. Yeah. Unreal. Indeed. <laughs> and of course, as we said, the harrying of the North, pretty harsh. Mm. So, in judging subjectivity, a few good things, but generally, if you're an English peasant, certainly, it's brutal. Yeah. Really horrible. Sets it up for the future, though, doesn't it? Sets it up for the future Normans. <laughs> yeah. That's what we... Yeah, I see what you mean. Okay. Because the interesting thing, quickly, people always sort of say oh, about if we'd lost the war, the Second World War, we'd all be speaking German. But actually, we probably wouldn't, because the Saxons are still there. Yeah. They're just yeah, not at yeah. the top of society. Yeah. yeah. So it's very much a few people at the top, Normans, ruling it for themselves. Yeah. Everyone else suffering. It's not too good. Not too good, as you say. <laughs> it's good for the, for the Normans in Normandy. Very good for them. But I think we're probably going to be fairly Anglo-centric. Yeah, I was going to say because that's 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 now. Are we now looking at Normandy in our? We're still we're including it kind of, but for subjectivity, it's England. Okay, yeah, certainly for this one, it would be a subject. Right, uh, bad. I'm going to lay a marker down and say, despite some of the good stuff, I'm going to give him a one. Really, he's a he, he's really he's a brutal oppressor. Really, he's a tyrant who invades the country. Harry's the North. You think about that, that thousand square miles where there's just nothing. Do you know what he'd say if you were the land. He'd just cut my hands off. <laughs> Will he do that and first? storm out. But as he was storming out, he'd go, well, they started it. <laughs> yes, he would say that. And that would be his excuse, perhaps. So, uh, given that he sort of, you know, didn't want to fight them on the bridges in London and sort of tried a softly, softly approach, I'm going to give him a three. Three. So that's a yeah. four for subjectivity. Low score. But he's done well in other areas. If you're going to be good at battliness, you're maybe yeah. not likely <laughs> exactly, to be yeah. good at subjectivity. Longevity. So he rules from 1086 to 1087. It's sort of 20 and a bit years or 21, mm-hmm. depending on how we do it. So if yeah. we call it 21 years for now, we'll yeah. work it out. But anyway, 21 is a very good score. It's uh, longer than most of the other kings we've had. Not the longest, but... No. Pretty decent. What's the longest? Alfred the Great still? No, no, it's uh, Ethelred the Unready with 38. Oh, 38, yeah, of course. It'll be a while before we top that. Mm. Dynasty, not the programme. So, as I say, he married uh, Matilda of Flanders. She sets an awkward precedent because three of the next four Norman queens are called Matilda. So it gets very confusing. Mm. Anyway, it's a very important marriage. Um, they get necessary alliances and troops, which helps him in Hastings. And she's also his regent in Normandy when he's off winning England and we think how insecure Normandy had been she does a good job because when he comes back a year later still there yeah still steady Um, she's also the smallest queen in English history she was just four foot two no she wasn't she was that's a child (laughs) that's a child indeed do you think he's five foot ten so they mean quite a wow an interesting picture how big were his kids Um, they're sort of a lot taller than her but they're all quite sort of stocky chaps wow but she's very small. What? Okay. It's a dangerous line. Indeed, but she's crowned in 1068 as queen at Winchester, which is something the Saxon queens often didn't get. Mm-hmm. So, you know, give and take, as you said, for <coughs> yeah. the women. And it was a <coughs> loving marriage, so apparently he was wretched when she died uh, before him in 1083. Mm. And it's also productive because they have nine children, although only six of whom actually outlive women, William. So for our purposes, dynasty is how many children he has yeah, as he six, dies. Yeah. It's six. But that includes three sons. That's pretty good. Which is pretty good, although as you see, they always cause problems when you've got lots of these sons. Mm. But he leaves Normandy to Robert, he leaves England to William Rufus, and Henry 
gets some land and riches. Oh, so it is actually then divided. He divides his kingdom. Indeed. Oh, so we're does. just going to focus on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. So that gives us a total of fifty-nine point five, which is the joint second highest score. No, sorry, joint third highest score. He's level with Ethelred the Unready <laughs> because of that longevity thing. Yeah. But anyway, we now come to our final consideration, the greatest of all. Does he have the Rex Factor? Now, we've had a couple of messages from people in our time away. This is a chap, David Crowther, who uh, contacted us on Twitter, at Rex Factor Pod, uh, and he said, Listen to your Edgar today. Good stuff. Shocked at the lack of Rex Factor award. Possible legal action? I'd say so. Then uh, Will Shank sent us an email, rexfactorpodcast at hotmail.com, and he said, I've returned listening now that you have reached the Normans. The Harold II episode was very long but very good. I thought you were far too harsh on him. He seemed to have good Rex Factor. You need to be careful you establish some consistency, else you'll end up giving George IV a higher score. That would never do. That would never do. But I agree. I think Harold II was awesome. He was awesome. Yeah, and underappreciated. <laughs> By us, perhaps. Yeah. But what we, we discussed this, and we decided basically, other than just you know being successful, being a good, entertaining king, you need to have a really solid, proper, massive achievement, and you need to have some kind of legacy. Mm. So it can't just be a flash in the pan like Edmund Ironside or Harold, where it quickly is kind of undermined by losing a battle, dying, and your yeah. kingdom being conquered. Yeah. And it can't be like Edgar, where you're a good, solid king, but you don't actually have anything that you particularly do. Did, if you've inherited it anyway, yeah. 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 So we need something that goes beyond that uh, legacy, strength, achievement, mm. something really big. Yeah. Which you might argue would uh, play into the hands of William the Conqueror. Because he's conquered the country, hence the name. It lasts, it's a dynasty that lasts. He's got Normandy, he's got England. Huge impact on English history. And it's the conquest itself, it's not just winning Hastings. Yeah. But it's a subsequent control. The thing is, we are looking at him as um, when you say when you said earlier that if you know if you've got high battleness, chances are you're going to have low subjectivity. Mm. It's really only the case here because mm. we're still thinking of him as a French oppressor, yes. whereas if it's the other way around, he'd presumably expanding. Yeah. But say we interpreted that after the coronation, mm. he's then king. Job done. Yeah. Right. And so all he's doing then is trying to put out fires and yeah. so but it is still conquest and so he's not only con- uh, not only has he succeeded in the conquest he's also securing it for what he now sees as a subject Indeed, he's, he's legitimately yeah. enforcing his rule yeah yeah and i well what what's uh, are we going to go straight decision and then then back it up or um yeah that's i mean i suppose the argument against would be that, you know, it's, it's not a very pleasant ruler, and yeah, he doesn't treat certainly. them very well. Yeah. And also, it's a bit of an ephemeral empire, because he does split it between his sons. Yeah. So he's kind of maybe thinking short-term what he's doing, rather yeah. than this long-term yeah. building. But very successful, on the other hand, as we've said. So I think it's now time for us to make our judgment on history. Go, you go we both it. have to say yes, and then, mm. then they will have it. Up. So... First of all, Go I say yes. Ali, you say yes, but, <laughs> but. I do say yes, hundred percent yes. William the Conqueror, he's he's our well for many people the starting point yeah. of, of the kings, queens, and England. If you bought a ruler with them on, yes, he's at the top there. Um, 
I I have a problem. Now, you know we always talked about standing on a mountain with a sword held high, all that rubbish, right? Forgetting that, yeah. with other kings, and I don't want to preempt it, that I'd imagine would have Rex Factor, say mm. Henry VIII, you've got a very definite idea of him in, his he- in your head, presumably mm. because you've got um, portraits of him as well. But earlier kings, say Alfred the Great, yeah. you've got a sort of mental image of them somehow, and I just don't have one for, for William. Is that I, because we didn't get the cards out for William? <laughs> it could well be, but I've played with those before, <laughs> and I just can't. I can't. I know. I know he's very successful, but the actually, actually, William himself. Who's the man a, behind the mask? Yeah, he's all a bit. He's all a bit murky. He's all a bit of a mystery. I said he's probably quite a harsh uh, character, quite brutal, quite straightforward. Yeah, he's got an idea, but, but it, not, he definitely deserves the Rex factor. But I can't. I don't feel like I, not that I can connect with any of the kings. But you can sort of see. They had uh, good branding. That's yeah. it. If they were in a you company, you'd know what they course, stood for. Of course, Alfred, of course, had his Asa. What is that? I forgot that. <laughs> his chap called oh, Asa. Yes, who yes, he did. Always yeah, surprises yeah. you when I bring that one. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I agree. William is, you respect him, but you don't like him. Yeah. And <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost begrudging yeah. that you've got to give it to him. You can't do. not. Yeah. But. Yeah, but it's there. It's nevertheless... Great. William has won the Rex Factor, so we say well done to William. Yay. You've joined Alfred the Great, Athelstan and Canute to be our fourth Rex Factor King. Well done, William the Conqueror. Jolly good. Jolly good. So that's the first of our Normans done. Next week Big we'll start. be doing William Rufus or William the Second. Yeah, interesting one. Indeed. Yeah. But until then, it's goodbye from me. Au revoir from me. Thanks for listening.